Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. As always, this episode is brought to you by EDMProd.com, an online resource dedicated to teaching electronic producers the tools and tactics needed to make better music. If you want to level up your production skills, whether it's learning the basics, writing better music, improving your mixes, or developing a more creative mindset, we've got you covered. Now, in this episode, I have a chat with Kashmir. If you've been producing dance music for more than 10 seconds, you're surely familiar with him, whether it's from his classic dance tracks like Secrets or My Best Life, his chart-topping sample packs, his many tutorials, or most recently, his very own plugin. Kashmir is a staple in the dance music industry, and it was a pleasure to be able to have him on the podcast just to gain more insight and perspective onto the success that he's had in the music industry. And trust me, he did not disappoint. Even if you're familiar with his background, there's heaps that you can take away in this episode on how to develop a more successful mentality, which has been critical for Kashmir's sustained success in the music industry. Now for this episode, we start off with Kashmir's background, looking at how he built his production and songwriting skills by himself early on. We dive into how he fell into producing for rappers and singers and how this led to him creating the Cataracts Project, today most widely known for the hit single Like a G6. We spend a while discussing Kashmir's transition into EDM, discussing how he took everything that he learned in the pop world and put that into his ideal artist project in dance music. Kashmir explains the keys to his early success with the project and what separated him from other producers that were also making that switch to dance music. On the production side, we spend a while discussing how to balance the technical and emotional aspects of music production. Kashmir mentions how producing EDM has hurt his ability to write music on an emotional level because he, like so many other producers, is too often overly concerned with the technical aspects of production. We talk about how to deal with this issue, focusing how to craft more emotive and expressive tracks within the dance music space. Later on, we talk about Kashmir's new education platform for music producers called Dharma Studio, as well as his brand new plugin, Kashmir Essentials. We also discuss why he loves to teach music production so much and the lessons that he's learned helping out thousands of producers learn how to make electronic music. He also lists off his favorite uncommon third-party plugins, a few of which I promise you've likely never heard of and will be blown away by. Kashmir also discusses the importance of creating a canvas for your artist project, an idea that's helped him to develop the cohesive and expressive brand that's at the forefront of Kashmir. We discuss the importance of authenticity and how to sew a narrative and story into both your brand and your music. We also discuss his label, Dharma Worldwide, discussing what he looks for in tracks that he signs to the label. Overall, this is an entertaining and info-packed episode that I can't wait for you to get into. So one last thing, Kashmir just released his brand new single called Bruck It Down with Sack Noel and T By The Way. I'll play you it as we slide into the interview. It's a really awesome track, bit of a new style for him. If you dig it, you'll find links to stream it in the description of this episode. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM podcast with Kashmir and a preview of his latest single, Break It Down. All right, welcome back to the EDM podcast. Today I'm joined by Niles, who releases under the name Kashmir. Niles, how you doing today? I'm good, man. I'm really excited to uh, be doing an interview that's actually about music production. It's always exciting. <laughs> awesome. Now, I'd imagine most people listening to this will be somewhat familiar with your background. So given that, just kind of briefly walk me through what your early musical background was like. 
Sure. So when I was really young, I was on the computer all the time. I was lucky that my dad had a computer in the house and I was into playing games and I started to want to make games of my own. And I started using something called Flash, which at the time was Macromedia Flash. I think it's Adobe Flash now. And yeah. it allowed you to make little games and uh, upload them to this website called Newgrounds where people used to play games. And and so I started to try to make these little games and then I needed music to go with them. And so I would go to websites that had little loops. And then once I had put two loops of music over each other, I sort of felt like I'd become an artist. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I put these two loops. And, and then I uh, found the software at the time that was easiest to get my hands on was called Acid, uh, Sonic yeah. Foundry Acid. Now it's Sony Acid. And, and that's what I used for a long time. I didn't really understand MIDI. I was just recording things in with some Roland synth box that you connected to a MIDI controller. And that's how you'd get sounds. And I really barely understand how it worked. I would just record sounds in from the Roland and I would try to make beats with them. It was like a very hip hop approach to making music back yeah. then where you just take samples and audio and cut them up and really not even understanding chords at that point. How did you learn how to do that? Did you have people around you that were doing that? No, um, it was really all self-taught, if you can even call it that. But I was, <laughs> took me so long to learn really elementary concepts. Like uh, eventually I figured out how to get sound, you know, coming out of the synthesizer. What you can't even call it a synthesizer. It's just like a little box with sounds that you had, you need a MIDI controller to control. It was, the whole thing was so convoluted. I was recording into the microphone input of my old Dell computer that we had at the house. Uh, I didn't have an interface. I didn't understand the concept of an interface. Um, and eventually I had the fucking cable plugged in so long that it started to bend the port in the computer. So I had to put some kind of contraption that would hold it vertically to keep the plug at a perfect horizontal right angle with the computer or else it would pull the port down and it, it would break off yeah. so anyway just just very ghetto and uh, it took me a long time to understand chords and um, just how things are related on a piano see I it was really funny I I ended up having a basic understanding that if this note is like the first note that I use, then I can go up two semitones and then I can go yeah. up three semitones and that'll sound good. And then I can go up five. So I started to like understand in the most Neanderthal way what a scale was. Um, but if, and eventually I got a poster from Guitar Center that had all the chords of, you know, that you, all the main chords that you could play. And there just weren't a lot of websites, at least that I knew of at the time. There weren't, yeah. you, wasn't YouTube. I mean, I'm 31. So when I was doing this, it was around like 12 years old, 13 years old. And, uh, but I did get the, a jump start and it was, it, it, it really helped going into high school. I went to high school with a lot of kids who rapped. Uh, hip hop was a really big thing. So they'd all come to my house and, um, and, and we'd record at my mom's house. We called it the studio. I'd charge them 15 bucks an hour. And, and uh, I, I, I really had the jump on everyone else who was starting to make beats. I was you know, pretty good at that point. And so I made it sort of a name for myself. That was sort of like what I was known for at the school. 
How did you end up kind of developing your chops from a production standpoint, moving from the like jerry rigged rolling synth box into your mic input to getting to a point where people were hiring you to record and produce for them? Well, I guess um, I did it so much and I was just, you know, leaving school, skipping school, coming home to work on music that you, you didn't even have to be that good. You were just kind of the guy, you know, not a lot of other people were doing it. So, but a lot of kids wanted yeah. to rap. A lot of kids wanted to rap. So if you were if you were a producer, you were sort of a hot commodity, you know. Um, and how did I start making money? Well, sometimes it wouldn't always be making beats. It would just be a fact I knew how to record people. And there was a one empty room in our house, and I turned that into sort of the studio. So I had a whole room dedicated, a nice couch, you know. And uh, so it was, a, it was a whole thing. And I think I got really good with the kind of, you know, this variety of, you know, shady people that would be in my mom's house looking over my shoulder, waiting for me to produce it, make something that sounded good. And that kind of pressure, uh, you know, in the Bay Area, we just had a lot of all kinds of rappers and, you know, just from, you know, hood kind of guys. And they'd always be in the room and you'd have to work quick. Yeah, I think that's not something that I feel like a lot of people have parallels for because it's almost like a production or hit making boot camp where for most yeah. people, like there isn't like a time on the clock for them when they walk into the studio, but that's a rare experience to have, especially when you're kind of more in those prime, like teenage years. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, it helps to uh, sort of get thrown into the fire and to have external pressure. I mean, I think, I think one thing that a lot of music producers are missing is external pressure, especially if they have a normal life that they're living and more of their external pressure is, uh, you know, is, is pushing them towards traditional jobs and, tra you know, traditional activities and a social life. And, and it really, as you get older, it's all about your own pressure that you're putting on yourself really. So you're producing for some like artists that you're going to high school with and kind of outside of that in the Bay area. When did you start to think about this being more of like a career for you and actually start to see that happening? Well, for me, I had this crazy blind arrogance that it was <laughs> just going to happen for me. And I remember my brother uh, and my mom, I remember we were at dinner one time and, and they were like, well, how do you know? You know, you don't have a backup plan. How do you know? And I was just like, I just know. I just know. I guess I knew that if I could do this thing, just so relentlessly, like it's all I wanted to do all the time. I just thought, what kind of universe do we live in that I'm not going to be successful at this? You know, I think Will Smith had some inspirational quote about, you know, I'm not the best runner, but I'll just, I'll stay on the treadmill w until I die, you know, I'll, until yeah. when everybody gets off, I'll still be on the treadmill. And I just thought if I'm producing every day and it's all I want to do, and it's just this crazy obsession and years go by and it hasn't run out, then it's just going to work for me. Like I'll land somewhere. And, um, I was really optimistic, at, you know, any little sign that, uh, we were you know, of success. I really, I really ran with it. And I was just like, Oh, this is going to be it. We're yeah. going to get signed to a label. I would say that the first actual sign of success around me was, uh, my friend Lloyd, who I'd grown up with, we had been really best friends. And then we had stopped talking to each other. When my parents got a divorce, I kind of stopped talking to a few friends. He was one of them. And we kind of didn't, you know, didn't talk to each other for years. And we come back and both of us were producing. It was just the most random thing. We had never talked about music yeah. and he was producing and he was a part of a group called The Pack. 
and they got a song on the radio and they started to become really wildly popular. Everybody knew them. They had a song called Vans. Got my Vans on, but they yeah, look yeah. like sneakers. And it was just so weird. Lloyd, you know, I hadn't seen him for years. He comes back and now he's doing that. And my whole life had become about music and producing. And I really looked up to him and he was using Reason at the time. And re so I switched from, re uh, from Acid to Reason. With Reason, if you fast forward, I ended up, like a G6 was Reason and Tsunami, even some of the early dance music that I was producing was on Reason, actually, believe it or not. But he was a bit, yeah, that was a, that was a big motivator to see somebody around us could, could really make it. I want to go back on one thing that you mentioned, yeah. this idea of blind arrogance, because I think that by itself doesn't seem like a desirable trait, but to some extent that got you to where you are right now. Because I think, you know, the odds are very much so stacked against you in the music industry. And I think that a lot of the people that really break through have some sense of like a, you know, blind arrogance or like an ego that they can kind of keep in check. Do you feel like you would be where you are right now if it weren't for that? No, um, no, definitely not. And I think you're touching on something that is really fundamental about successful people is entitlement. I don't, I think a better word to use is probably entitlement and in the word entitlement gets a bad rap also, but yeah. a young kid who feels entitled to answers from his doctor when he goes in for a checkup, uh, he feels that just because this guy is a doctor doesn't mean he's above answering questions that I have. Uh, he's a person just like me, uh, someone who feels entitled to things generally becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They feel entitled to answers. They feel entitled to know why the world works the way that it does. And they feel entitled to success if they work hard at something. And a really bad lesson that people can be taught early on is if you work at something, it doesn't matter. It just wasn't meant for you. Uh, and they feel sort of partitioned off from the successful people. And that's a mentality that can be really insidious and I've seen happen and usually I've got friends that I grew up with that can get into a bit of a mentality of like, a, almost like it's a big conspiracy. Like, yeah, I'm not going to be one of the successful people. That's like a whole organization that, you know, I would need to get some secret access code into or the government operates in some sort of uh, conspiracy driven way where they all are, you know, uh, sort of... Uh, uh, coming together and conspiring to make sure that you don't succeed or that the the yeah. common people don't get to attain the same fruits that the rich do. And and that mentality um, is self-fulfilling also. That 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 the feeling that you're not entitled to things is really self-fulfilling as well. So yeah, that I was as a kid, I had some interesting qualities about me. I I really loved football, like American football. And and I was so into it that I started a little league with my friends and I would take it way too seriously and I would want them to all sign up. And uh, I had this thing about me. I'd always want to take things to some next level. And I didn't feel like even being a kid at eight or nine years old that anyone should tell me that I couldn't do that, that I couldn't uh, start something like that. And and I didn't always think it through and I didn't always really have the means to 
to realize the vision that I had, but that was maybe tied in also to the arrogance or, or just feeling like, uh, just because I'm a little kid and I don't know shit doesn't mean I shouldn't be able to organize a football. You know, it was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was the same mentality that I think as I got, as I, I'm older now, and when I think about going and doing it all again, it's pretty exhausting. And I don't know if I could do it. And I think I've become yeah. too realistic and also just having relationships and that arrogance not always serving me well in relationships um, and trying to become more of a moderate person has been a part of getting older for me. And I think for that same reason, I, it'd be hard for me to do it all over again, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, even that idea of arrogance doesn't necessarily have to be a hundred percent bad. Like just cause you're arrogant doesn't mean that you're an asshole and rude to people. But I think you could also push that in a way where you're like, you know what, screw you. Maybe I didn't get this track signed or I wasn't able to play at this show. I'm going to push through and show you that I can do it. Because yeah. again, like there's so many roadblocks that you hit in the music industry. Oh, you have to have some sense of just unreasonable belief. Yeah, that's right. Isn't it? You, there's gotta be something wrong with you. Honestly, <laughs> there's gotta be something wrong with you. you, you yeah. I was going to therapy for a while and it felt like a lot of the a lot of the work that she wanted me to do um, pointed me in a direction of more balance. And um, and I think that she's right. I mean, I think that to being healthy involves a lot of balance. It's just to be exceptional and to want to stand out requires more insecurity and imbalance and you needing to make up for something that you feel you lack or you need extra attention. You need to be more uh, unique than other people in order to, to just feel a sense of worth. And I think it's a lot, I think a lot of it is often insecurity driven to feel like you need to be uh, considered higher in some way than the people around you, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at any of kind of the peak athletes in the sports world, whether it's like a Michael Jordan or I know a lot of people have watched the climbing documentary about Alex Honnold, who is like one of the best climbers and what would do weird, all of these interesting guys. So interesting. really interesting guy. Definitely for everyone yeah. listening, even if you're not into climbing, watch that. But similar thing, he had insecurities about his parents and like never feeling like he was, you know, they approved of him and he would do these crazy free climbs because he was still just kind of yearning for that, even though he was at the, you know, the peak and didn't have anything really to prove to a general audience. So yeah, I think a lot of people you do find with those traits. He, man, that guy's girlfriend, what a trooper, huh? Yeah. <laughs> like you just got there and try to die every day, you know? And yeah, God, what a, what a interesting guy. Yeah. That was, that's yeah. a great documentary for anyone he hasn't seen. I think it won best documentary. I think it did. I think it, I think it did. Yeah. Cool. So kind of sliding things back, you were working in more of the pop lane after you were in high school, did that, obviously had like a G6. I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to kind of hear what your transition was like away from that into more of the EDM space, especially as a lot of people listening to this podcast are still trying to find what their lane and style is in music. If you really take it back to high school, it was all hip hop music that we were making at the time. And there yeah. was a there and I was part of two groups and one was called the Headbusters and you're allowed to laugh at that, but by the way, <laughs> the Headbusters, I was in a group called the Headbusters, and then the yeah. other group was called the Cataracts, and I really didn't know which direction was more promising. In hindsight, 
it's ludicrous that I couldn't tell which direction was more promising. The cataracts were yeah. leaning in a bit more of a poppy experimental meets hip hop direction. And the headbusters was like, you know, a bunch of fucking gangsters. I mean, one of, one of us wound up in jail stabbing somebody. Another guy offed himself. Another guy was uh man. It was, I mean, and, and, but they were all great guys, by the way, not, not a bad bunch of guys. And I'm really close with one of them still, but anyway, there was a turning point in my sister's boyfriend at the time, I brought this uh, dilemma to him and he was like, you're crazy. Go with the cataracts. Absolutely. 100%. And, and so I did, and I dedicated my time and that led to a falling out with the head buses, but in the end was, was obviously the right decision. And our songs were a bit more melody driven and we found we really stood out and got a fan base, especially with girls, um, for these songs where we were singing a bit more on them. And, and David, who was my partner, had a really cute way of putting these hooks together. And he was, he was yeah. just a really charming guy. And um, uh, some of the popular stuff that we did got us a lot of success. Uh, stuff that we're singing on more. So that led us to, and I was just discovering Melodyne at the time and and things that was like, holy shit, I can uh, sing all of a sudden. And this, you yeah. know, come as a, as, a, as a kid who had eclectic taste, you know, listen, with the music that I grew up on, like the Beatles and Bob Marley and shit that uh, would be playing around my house. Uh, this, I was like, well, I just never thought that I could do pop music, but now with technology, uh, I can. And so we started to do more pop and I discovered this girl named Dev who lived in a small town by where we lived and started to make her music. And her music was necessarily pop. I mean, she was a singer, right? So yeah. that really opened my chops up to not just producing pop music, but producing uh an artist project. And that is yeah. such a big tool that I cannot overstate for a producer to take on an artist, uh, especially a vocalist specifically, and to produce their music and to come up with a whole concept for their project, to create a canvas for somebody else uh, that they're going to live in, a branding for them that they can live in, is so much easier than to truly objectively look at yourself. When we look at ourselves, we're often too complicated. We think of ourselves as being so sophisticated. And when we want to express ourselves in music, we are almost paralyzed because of yeah. the standard that we set for something that should have our name on it. But when you think about working with another artist, you can sort of put them in a box. And that's also looked at as a negative thing, but it's really not. If you want to succeed in the music industry, you have to start out in a box that people can easily understand. And so working for another artist, producing another artist project, it's so much easier to do that, to think of a simple branding, a simple uh, direction that you think would work for them. So Dev taught me a lot. And a lot of my time and energy started to go into Dev. And we moved down to LA. And after Like a G6, you can imagine the attention that that got and wanting to recreate yeah. the success that Like a G6 uh, afforded us. And that was such a funny song. It happened really as a fluke. I was in a really crappy little, uh, a little back house that we found on Craigslist. I just moved to LA. I had gotten off of my friend's couch. He let me stay on his couch. And I was in this pool house that they had turned into a livable space. And uh, it had just like a little tiny bathroom the size of a fucking coffin to take a shower in. I was paying 400 bucks a month or something. Uh, they would send me artists every day, my managers. And one of the artists was the Far East Movement. I honestly, I was like, okay, we've got 
they're, uh, you know, Korean guys, Asian American guys in a rap group. I was like, whatever is possibly going to come out of this, you know? And, yeah. and we whipped up the song very quickly, it made the beat in all of 30 minutes. And uh, there was a chorus from Dev that we had already written for another song. And um, David, I think, was said, why don't you put it on this one? And we popped it on there. And I mean, even the key wasn't right. It wasn't even in the same key with her autotune, but it was just a vibe. And I was like, yeah. yes, maybe this isn't right. And then I looked around and everybody else was like, this is dope. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> this is dope. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's happened a lot where I thought something was wrong as a producer. And then I gauged the room and that kind of... Uh, made me understand that, hey, this is dope. You're thinking about the wrong things. You're thinking about what technically isn't working. And that song, of course, ended up being a really big song for us. Yeah, I think that's such a crucial thing because I think so many producers work strictly in a bubble. And I think it was on another podcast that you were talking, maybe it was the Willie Joy one, where you talked about like even having like girls in the back of the studio, they're like a good metric for whether or not your track <laughs> yeah. is bumping or just, you know, just people in general, <laughs> no, like whether sure, or not you're, sure, yeah. because like if it's hitting the average person who isn't really paying attention, you know, you have something there. That's exactly right. Diplo once told me that I was talking about David and uh, this was back in the cataracts days when we first met him. And he, I was like, you know, I was kind of getting a little resentful. I was like, David mostly hangs out in the back of the studio smoking pot on the couch, you know, <laughs> I'm doing all the work. And he looked at, Dippo was really serious. He looked at me, he's like, you need that guy in the back on the couch smoking pot, listening to why you, why you make beats. Dippo probably is that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but yeah, but yeah, but he's right. You want to be in touch with how your music is affecting actual people. I mean, one of the most successful producers of the past 40 years doesn't know how to produce music in a Rick Rubin. Really? Tell me about Rick. I didn't know that. Tell me more about that. Yeah. I don't think he's not like a technical, you got to go boost at 5k by 3dbs. He's more like, we're going to place this here. We're going to switch up the verse and chorus as far as I know, but who's produced more hits than that guy. But the more that you can connect with music on a non-technical level, the better that you're able to translate that from a technical level. That is so, such a good observation. And you know who is a fucking mythical producer to me? And I love this guy, Benny Blanco. Yeah, He's not technical at all. In fact, when I work with him, I remember the way he would put a chord together, he'd record in one note from some <laughs> crappy synthesizer. In Pro Tools, he made beats. And he would duplicate the note and pitch it and make a fucking chord <laughs> that way out of a single note. I mean, just really, really wild. But Benny just... And he and sessions with Benny also used to be like so free flowing. Like he would just kind of like lay down on the couch for a lot of it. A lot of it kind of talk about you know, what we want to work on, but a lot of jokes. And he would always surround himself with really talented people. And the songs just came. They just came. And everyone loved Benny. And that really went a long way. And I think he was very in touch with the 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 sort of uh, receiving side of music and not yeah. so invested in the technical making it more. He was very connected with how it would be received by people, I think. I think that's one of the tough parts, and I'm sure you experienced this moving over into EDM, especially because the production is just so much more technical, where as a newer producer, you kind of have to learn a lot of the technical side to get to a point 
if you want to make kind of more industry standard dance music. But at the same time, you have to unlearn as much of that as you can so that you can still connect it to the listener as just a normal track. Doesn't matter what, you know, how big the mix is or how well your kick's hitting if there aren't those core elements in place first. Yes, no, that is true. And it's really hard to be taken seriously in dance music if you are not a killer with the production side, the technical side, because that is so, that you'll be judged largely on that. Like in pop music, I think ideas are really paramount and your technical ability has to be there. But in EDM, there are some tracks that are regarded as good tracks that are really only good tracks for their technical mastery. Yeah. how well they did a, a fairly simple idea. Um, and, you know, the reason that a lot of producers, if I'm just going to be brutal, might get into EDM music is because it's a little bit more mathematical. And there's yeah. something satisfying about just knowing you EQ'd and compressed everything the right way and everything's very clicky and punchy. It's almost like a bit more of a math problem and... My mentality has probably transformed from pop music. When I listen back to the stuff that I made in pop music and that I was satisfied with in pop music, it is offensive to me now when I listen to it, <laughs> like in terms of the kick and the bass, yeah. you know, and the way things were interacting. But I also, I was sent a demo just yesterday. The demo on first listen sounded great. I mm -hmm. loved it. I was like, this is incredible. It was it was a demo f w to show me a vocal, but the production was already incredible. And yeah. then I opened up the stems and I immediately, I was like, what the fuck is going on here? The fucking kick is playing at the same time as some 808 sound. Nothing is being sidechained. All of these, the it was a pluck driven sort of drop thing. The plucks were all flaming. When you looked at the transients, <laughs> they were all off. They were all early to the kick. Everything was shuffling in like its own shuffle. They were in front of the kick when they were supposed to be on top of the kick. The 808 was playing at the same time. You listen to the 808 by itself and it sounds like they took the worst 808 sample and pitched it and, and like, you know, pitched it in the sense that like it had a kick in the 808 and the kick was getting smaller. And, you know, when you, when you don't yeah. actually warp it, you just change the pitch of it. Just all these terrible things. But I had to remember that my first impression listening to it was that it sounded fantastic and there's almost nothing I should change about it at all. So um, I think that sometimes I'm almost frustrated with how much going into EDM music has taught me about what should and should not be and what is what is technically right and how kicks and bass should interact and and how nothing should be flaming and how all your transients should line up. And yeah. it is, you know, it, it is... I don't want to be one of these old fogies that say EDM is like killing the soul of music, but there was a moment when I looked at that demo yesterday that I was like, wow, have I lost some of what's important about music, the imperfection of it by how much I've learned? Has it hindered me? Has it weighed me down how much I've learned since yeah. going into dance music? So going back to when I went from the cataracts into Kashmir, the cataracts had become very convoluted to me. We had gone into it as lovers of hip hop. Yeah. We had found success in pop, started leaning pop, found success as producers and songwriters with Like a G6, and suddenly everyone wanted us to just produce and, and, and songwrite. And that was an awkward fit. David 
was a great songwriter, but like when you could catch him, you know, he, he would, he pump out a gem, but it was, it was really unconventional. I mean, he would do like a sort of half rap, half singy thing. And he would, you just, you'd have, you know, moments of brilliance, but it wasn't the same as like a traditional pop writer who you'd go into the studio with Justin Bieber and he would write like a song for Justin. It, It was it was not really consistent in a way that um, was rewarded by the pop songwriting session industry. So he he left and he went to China to travel. We were our relationship was really sort of crumbling already, and he wanted to leave. And so I didn't know what to do, and I tried to do the cataracts thing on my own, which was even weirder. Yeah. And then um, I started to ghost produce a little bit. Uh, I basically had a friend who was a, a DJ in Los Angeles who was a friend. He'd take care of us. Uh, he was a promoter at the local clubs. He, okay. he, he would just take care of everyone, and, and uh, everyone got along, and we became close. And he was like, hey, I, I'm DJing, but I don't have any music of my own to play. And, you know, you've done the cataract stuff. Why don't you try making some dance music, and, and why don't you do it for me and just see how it goes? And I was like, okay, that's cool. We drafted up a little deal. If you if you blow up, I'll I'll make some money that way, and I'll I'll make you some songs. And so that led to ghost producing, and some, you know, some great things came out of it. And tsunami was one of them. And um, tsunami, when it got as big as it did, um, really indicated to me that maybe I could transition into dance music and do it in an authentic way. Not like Will I Am. Some of these guys at the time were just jumping on the bandwagon, and I really didn't want to be perceived that way. So yeah. I wanted when tsunami happened, I was like, you know what? Maybe I could be legit. Maybe I wouldn't be a phony. I'd be for real. And it was very clear to me, also coming from the cataracts and the bottle popping music that we became known for, how I would do it completely differently. I wanted to create the artist project that I'd want on my tombstone. I'd want it to be like a reflection of me, to have integrity, to be just, I wanted to kind of like be the hero in my story again, which was there at the beginning of getting into music and sort of faded as we got success uh, as a cataract. It pushed us in a lot of directions, having nothing to do with why we got into music, having everything to do with money, frankly. And mm. with Kashmir starting it, I was like, you know what? I'm going to make this about my Indian heritage, about being Kashmiri. I'm going to do cinematic things, things that I just find interesting. And, um, you know, and I had made music from pop music, uh, made money from pop music. And I just didn't feel like I needed to make decisions based on money. And, you know, now when you look back, you say, oh, he came out and he said, I'll be the Indian DJ and, and what a great marketing ploy and everything. Yeah. But at the time it was like, here is my, if I didn't do it for money, how I would do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then it became successful. But I think at the, at the root of every real success I've had in my life is some, some moment of authenticity where I wasn't making a decision for money. It ended up being the most successful things, you know? By many accounts, like you were just doing that for yourself and you were doing what your brand and personal heritage was. And I think there's that's so much more interesting than just trying to do like a slight variation of something that already exists. I think people think yeah. about like, oh, I'm sacrificing something by doing something that's truer to myself. But so many of the great artists do come from that space of something truly unique. 
You're right. I think some people are born with that mentality, by the way, and I really envy them. That right <laughs> from right right from being a young kid, um, they are not interested in things that get them recognition. They're just very, really authentically interested in uh, a few things. And they will dedicate their life to those things, regardless of how much money they make um, and the success that will be tied to it. Um, I was really motivated by success and by being noticed uh, early on. And it was it was sort of a rock bottom thing for me for the cataracts to end and then for me to try to carry on by myself and for that to not work. It was like yeah. a really rock bottom thing for me. And... I said, well, I, I just want to do something that would be interesting. And uh, so I, it doesn't really come naturally to me. I was really insecure and motivated by success. And, and uh, that just, it was at the right nexus in my life where I was able to clearly make a decision like that. Because what the fuck else did I have uh, to lose? I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I had made the money from pop, but um, in terms of my artistry, I had really let it go, you know, really become about nothing at all, you know, just mm -hmm. about party, kind of party music, sort of. Uh, anyway, so, so yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it is a really important place to start from to just do something that you'd want to wake up every day doing because you will be really unsuccessful at it for a long time. And if you try to pick some angle just because it seems marketable, You'll get bored with it unless it's what you actually like to wake up and do every day. You, yeah. you can never just say, oh, you know what? There seems to be a lot of money in, in baseball. I'll, I'll be a baseball <laughs> player. Or I'll, there's a lot of money yeah. in EDM music. Like, no, you're going to be like every other idiot who thought they'd get into EDM music and make a name for themselves if you don't wake up and do it every day. I think there's this idea that once the money comes, you're happy underneath. No. Uh -uh. And I think in dance music, you know, I'm sure that's prevalent in most industries, but I think a lot of people think about that in dance music. Yeah. No, it's fucked. I mean, you know what the hardest thing about dance music is you make all your money on the road. And uh, on the road is just, you're lost. You're just in a time warp. You're, you're chasing every party. Humans, I mean, listen, I, I actually, there's so much I love about shows. And I think we put on a really special show. We have this whole animated story that takes, I'm really, really proud of the show, but the whole existence of being on the road, you're chasing the party of every city you go to. Like for those people there, it's maybe the biggest thing that they've done, you know, in the last four or five months. And you're, you, and it's nothing to you. You're just numb. You're just going yeah. to every high level, joyous celebration. And, and you're just not meant to, uh, be so so oversaturated with that emotion, uh, and it, it's hard not to become like whatever about it. Like you're at a new place, yeah. the biggest LED screens, the biggest like these things that should be making you so excited, and it has just become so routine to you. And you're meeting new people all the time, and I just don't have the capacity to remember all these people. And I often like, like the conversation we're having now to mm -hmm. commit to a conversation, to get into it, to get invested, to learn about the other person once I do. But I have a, a very, uh, I don't want to do that all the time. And to yeah. try to remember all these different people all the time and share these, you know, 
that for that day with those with that organization, they're taking you around, you're getting to meet all of them. It is just emotionally, it's like Tinder, sort of like you're just emotionally <laughs> yeah. giving yourself out everywhere, you know, and it's and it's it's disconnected. You come back to reality and transitioning back into just what makes you an artist making new music that it is hard to transition. And when you look yeah. at the calendar and you had a week on and a week off, that week back off where you're going to make music, you think in that week is totally fucked. You know, you are transitioning from being on the road. It takes time to transition back into, you know, great music comes from being home for months at a time being, you know, it's explorational. You're trying new sounds. You don't feel like you have the time to try anything experimental when you only have four or five days before you're back on the road. It feels irresponsible to be experimental. You've got to finish the lowest hanging fruit, the the, the single, the ne- what's the next single going to be? Can we just check that off? You don't really have time to, to do the things that make a, an interesting, exceptional artist uh, with such a short amount of time. That's not how art's meant to be made. You know? And I think that's interesting framing it back against you first thinking about the Kashmir Project in 2013, 14, when you had that time versus now, I would imagine that you don't have as much ample free time to focus on the craft because there's so much to what is your enterprise at this point. Yeah, I promise I won't go on another rant like that again. I'm sorry, (laughs) by the way, but but you've touched on something absolutely true, which is um, that I had the biggest advantage over everybody for, for the first year and a half or so. I didn't show my face as Kashmir and I just made music. And I realize now that w- I'm a part of a scene where nobody has time like that. Um, yeah. So to stand out from people, that was just an incredible gift to have been afforded to make so much music. Uh, a couple of them did well. I was doing collaborations and I was the guy hitting people up, hitting up rehab, hitting up Tiesto, uh, just sending ideas all the time um, and uh, was able to break into the scene uh, before I ever showed my face with a, with a pretty decent buzz, decent name for myself. And when I played my first shows, I, I mostly played uh, my own music. And that is so, that was so crucial to my success. Those early uh, year, year or two where I was just making just ungodly amounts of music. And, you know, there were and it was just me and Anthony. He was my best friend. Anthony lived with me, be in the room. And he started to get really good at all of the content, the visual content that would accompany the music. So it was this amazing. He's right there. Yeah, Anthony's right there. I just said <laughs> And so it was this incredible, the spirit of let's stay up all night, which we did all the time, making music. He was making the visual. At 8 a.m., we're going live with this new song. And it would be a rush. It would be it would just be this rush that, you know, I hope, uh, I hope doesn't get totally lost. I mean, you know, we've had to, you, you can only be on that high for so long. I mean, it starts to wear on you, no doubt, but, um, mm-hmm. but I wish, I hope everyone gets to feel what that is like, that you believe in something so much, you're going to stay up all night. Your own health doesn't matter, Re- you know, outside relationships. I mean, this is where we go back to balance and how, how, yeah. I mean, this was the opposite of balance. My therapist would have, uh, you know, she would have, she would have had a heart attack. It was just the yeah. opposite of what she would hope for me. 
but we did some really exceptional things and it was such a high man to to be on so i think with that let's kind of slide things over into more of the production realm the first thing that i want to talk about and for anyone listening to this you're probably familiar with your tutorials is just this kind of perpetual focus on education with your brand i think it started as like tips on your website like four or five years ago oh i remember God, just those remember being a gold the... mine that was a minute ago Whoa. and like now you've got your all of your splice tutorials you've got the dharma studio which i want to touch on at some point but first off just kind of explain where does this strong focus on education come from for you another another part of thinking about what i wanted cashmere to be was um like just having a more clear insight to really who I was and what I could wake up every day doing. And I woke up every day producing music and uh, it was just all I wanted to do. And um, it was kind of a substitute for social life in a, in a lot of <laughs> cases. And, you know, um, but it felt like an acceptable anti, you know, way to be antisocial. And um, when, when I really, thought clearly about who I was, um, it made sense to me to want to contribute and be really important to that community and just be important to the community and serve some purpose in the community. That is the only community I really feel a part of, you know, that is the most important one to me. I think a lot of happiness in general can just be defined as having some value to the people that are important to you. You know, I mean, just in general to feel like, you know, you'd want someone that you love to love you back. And yeah, so the producer community is is sort of everything to me. And I want to be important back to it, really. Was there anyone, especially kind of at the earlier stages from like a label or PR management standpoint that wanted you to push back against that, that didn't think that you should be doing the tutorials, especially given, you know, at least a lot of the higher ups kind of keep their production techniques and concepts kind of hidden from their audience. You know, it's funny. Uh, the first time I ran into that was with rehab and rehab was very precious about his techniques and especially about his kicks. He was, had a really thing about it, all his kick drums <laughs> and uh, he didn't want any, he didn't want anybody sharing this. He didn't play me something. Don't tell anyone how I did this. And, um, and, I just felt markedly different from him in, in that regard. And I respected him, uh, but that was really the only time when I, when I saw somebody be sensitive about that. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if my managers necessarily understood it or understood the value of it, but they were supportive. Um, I didn't really have a lot of pushback. And, you know, I had come to this point where I wasn't really worried that somebody was going to take my sounds or my style. I just didn't really look at it that way. I was like, I want to show this community that like, I really do this shit every day. And yeah. I want to share tips with you. And I want like the same way that I learn. And I just think like, I, I still watch tutorials all the time. I was like, I want to be one of those guys. I wanted, I, I could do it. I would look at it and be like, Hey, you know what? I could do a tutorial more succinctly and give you better information in a smaller amount of time. Um, and that would be cool. Like that, that would to the geeky kid in me, that would be being a hero sort of, you know? I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. Just this is your community and you want to do things to help it. Yeah, and I think yeah, so many yeah. producers, they're in their own bubble and don't necessarily have you know, a lot of us don't have in-person people that they're connecting with on music, but 
for a lot of people that are probably just getting into production, they might not even have an online community. So having something like that, that makes you feel, I don't know, like when I do all my education stuff, I feel a little bit less guilty and less pressure on myself for the music stuff and can feel like I'm just generating something of value and giving back with that too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And isn't it kind of cathartic also to teach, you know, like we spend a lot of time thinking about things, but when you, when you have to put them into words, it makes you feel smart. It makes you feel smart. <laughs> and yeah. it also gives you like clarity that usually don't require yourself to articulate what you're doing so much, you know, yeah. like internally, you're not required to really articulate it. And when you do articulate it, there are things that you find and they almost, it just becomes a little bit more clear even to yourself why you do the things that you do and, and you can yeah. be more analytical of it. It's definitely something that I've learned with all the courses that I've done. It's like one thing to write a song. It's another thing to explain the theory and arrangement behind it. So I'm sure you felt yes. that like it's forced you to know your shit when discussing this on camera. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Yeah, it does force you to know your shit. I will say like um, I produce music all the time, every day, obviously. And uh, yesterday I did a live stream where I made a music a song in front of everybody who was watching on the live stream. Yeah. And uh, the time, it didn't seem so intense. But when I got off of that stream, I was so drained yeah. and exhausted. And just knowing that all these people are watching me um, produce, I even for me, it was it was really put me on my toes. And yeah. uh, so knowing that people are watching you, it's like, you know, even though I have, I preach a lot of great habits. I, uh, I have a lot of bad ones though. I have a lot, I have a lot of questionable habits, I'm, yeah. you know, and maybe there's an argument for them that I like to quickly get things sounding basically good. And if that means throwing like OTT everywhere, it doesn't bother me, um, because I'm always just trying, you know, I'm trying to move along the song and the idea and see the song start to form it as quickly as possible. Yeah. But you know, with all these people watching you, you do start to say, well, uh, do I want to be advocating to just, uh, you know, <laughs> I haven't done any queuing except just to high pass a few things or, or anything. Um, and so think about that, but that, that actually sort of transitions whenever you're ready into the plugin. The plugin is also sort of aims to be a simple way to uh, get you results Quickly. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you just released a uh, plugin called Cashmere Essentials. I think it was with uh, What About Production and you're doing That's like funny. a rent to own thing on Splice. So, you know, it's a daunting thing. There's so many great plugins out there. Kind of talk about what was your initial thought going into developing that? Well, it's not super original in the sense that there were the, the there was the uh, series that Waves did like CLA for vocals and uh and that jjp they i think manny did a series many but uh but they um they seemed pretty outdated to me and i wasn't really getting the results that i wanted from those plugins but if you put the one on drums it's just awful i mean i think it was intended <laughs> for maybe like acoustic drum kits so they felt very outdated and um also i thought well you know it could be all put into one place i mean there are five basic categories that, uh, you know, you'll find pretty much in any 
modern production. You got synth, bass, drums, vocals. And, and there are some things that just come up all the time. You want transient design. And uh, I, could, I could give you a parameter that's not so extreme, but it will, it will make things sound just a little bit better. And that was the whole ethos yeah. with the plugin was I don't want to, uh, I don't want you to put it on and just be sort of flabbergasted that your sound has transformed. I just want to give you incremental improvements. Like we're going to give it more transients. We give it more attack. You want a yeah. little more sub, tell us what the key is in the cashmere essentials gives you just a little notch around the, the sub, uh, around the fu fundamental of your song of your choosing. Yeah. And so, so, and I, I love having a wave graph. I love seeing how the audio uh, is changed. LFO tool has one. Uh, it, a lot of the isotope has one, but it's so useful. I mean, when yeah. you're looking at uh, your sequence, uh, until you freeze and flatten something or print it, or I don't know what it is in logic, but you don't really know how, in a visual way, how your audio is transformed. So I said, okay, mm -hmm. that, that would be nice. And when I thought of all these features, um, you know, it would be about, eight or nine or 10 or 10 things that you had to reach around for a lot of different plugins. But considering the fact that I'm using pretty similar settings all the time, yeah. uh, you know, to put it into one plugin and give people a way to get good results on the fly quickly, it was, yeah. uh, it just seemed like a, a no brainer. And I went with what about productions who had experience doing some of the components that needed to exist in Cashmere Central. So they had done multiband compression before. They had done EQ, they had done transient design before. So I was like, listen guys, I just have specific settings. We just need yeah. to put a bunch of modules together. Um, and I created Ableton racks that would use Waves plugins, they would use Ozone plugins, and it would approximate the effect that we're looking for. And then they would uh, develop it using original uh, yeah, coding, original EQs, original compressors. and and uh, they just did an incredible job. Uh, I'm just really impressed with what a great job that, that they did. And then, and then getting spliced on board with rent to own, that was, that was the one tricky thing because a hundred bucks as a price point, you know, I've gotten a little uh, flack about that. And maybe it's a little bit high and, but it was the way that it made sense to do rent to own. Rent to own is, uh, it is a whole program that requires a lot of thought and effort from everybody at Splice. Yeah. And for a really low price point, nothing about it works. The mechanics of it just, just don't work. Or the economics of it don't work. So that is when I started to think, well, if we do rent to own, but it's five bucks a month, then somebody can get it really cheap. It's free at first with the trial, but then it's five bucks a month. And if they use it for 20 months, then have I given them a $100 value? And then I thought, well, yeah, I mean, like if you use it for 20 months, I guess it's, that's worth a hundred bucks. And, and so it worked out to me. And I know I've gotten a bit of flack about that. And, and I do understand the flack. I just want, for anyone listening, I do understand the flack. But again, if you use it for 20 months, it's a hundred bucks. If you use it right now, it's, it's five bucks. So. And I think you can also, with the free trial and five bucks, see whether or not it's worth it. Like there's no excuse to not figure out whether or not that's going to be good in your workflow too. Yeah, right. I mean, I think trying out, you know, tell me this uh, with new plugins when you get it, how do you remember to use new plugins that you get and not just reach for the old ones? You know? If I don't write them down, I forget about it for six months until one of my friends sends me a project file with it. And I'm like, oh shit, I have that. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> when someone else uses it, there's something in our brain that ticks off and 
and suddenly we uh, we want to use it. it Seems like uh, they must know uh, the trick. They must know the secret sauce. I actually do. You ever uh, use VSTs mostly, right? Not components or yeah. Uh, you know, you can organize VSTs. You could do your own folders. Never and, really thought uh, about doing that. You can create your own folders. And you can put all your compressors in one place and your EQs in one place. And the benefit of that is uh, when you go into your plugin directory uh, in Ableton, when you're browsing and you go to compressors, you'll see ones that you downloaded and sort of forgot about. And it will remind you that uh, that you have other options. So like you go in there just looking for compressor, but then you see one that you haven't tried. And at least it will sort of be in front of you to think about using. So one thing that I want to go back on is your new education platform called Dharma Studio. You've got tutorials, sound packs, templates up there. It was only a matter of time, me and everybody at our company said, but kind of like talk about your inspiration for creating this platform. So the inspiration was, we, you know, starting a label and the label was great to give a platform to the songs that would come in. A lot of them would be collab ideas, but... I just didn't have the time or it didn't make sense. And I still want to give a platform. So that was the idea with Dharma, the label, to give a platform to songs that I liked, to give them a fighting chance to be heard. Uh, but when I thought about how it could be more than just label or what would make this label interesting to me, it was when I thought about the educational potential of it, to have a website that just doesn't tell you to come and buy the songs we want you to buy, but it offers you lessons from me and it offers you uh, as often as possible the samples used in the songs that we release on Dharma. And we get the producers who release songs to explain the songs that they're releasing on Dharma. So it's sort of a, I kind of look at it as like a 360 package around the music that we release to get the producers to explain the songs, to go the extra step, to give you some of the sounds from the songs and to promote this whole philosophy of sharing our tricks and sharing our knowledge. Uh, so, yeah. and I think it's also as from a user perspective, it's cool to know that you're learning from people who have put out songs that you think are dope. Um, it's always a good starting point. You know, when you're, you never want to like get a haircut from a guy with crappy hair or something, you know, <laughs> so it's uh, following that logic. And uh, the website now is, it's a free and pro thing. So for 10 bucks a month, you get a pro account and it, it opens up more stuff to you. And then the free account, you have, you know, less things, but there's something for everyone. We've taken the whole tutorial thing up to a new level, like shooting them really nicely in a studio and uh, give, trying to give people a bang for their buck. I mean, at 10 bucks a month, um, we are maybe almost uh, paying for all our costs, you know, um, uh, eventually we will be. Um, but it takes a lot of manpower to go into it. And, you know, creating little sample packs for people to use, it's, it's really uh, time consuming. Everything that it goes into it, I'm sure, as you know, everything takes time. So um, right now, it's just mostly being funded out of my pocket. But I think it, we've got about a thousand users now, though. Awesome. And uh, uh, pro subscribers. And at this rate, I think we can stay alive and and uh, improve, actually, uh, the content that we're putting out. Uh, we've really got some hustlers on board currently. Like We're like, yo, we know we can't 
pay you all that much? Or could, <laughs> could you try to get another sample pack and make one about yeah. this or make some presets and um, really pulling out all the favors? Um, but I think on, at, on the path that we're on, I think it, it could uh, just, it, it'll be a really great tool um, to get th those kind of tutorials um, with that kind of uh, quality and you know the stuff on YouTube it is a bit hit or miss some of them are really quality but I think to centralize yeah. to centralize a place that producers can come to and uh, learn techniques and uh, get these resources I think uh, I think is needed I, I it's not the yeah. only one but I think it has my personal touch and I I do believe in my uh, in my taste and just being a producer and and my understanding of what producers want. So I think it's got that going for it. And I'm really proud of the website, dharmaworldwide.com, everybody. Yeah. Awesome. So one thing that you mentioned is you've got people kind of working with you on the site. Obviously at this point, you've got a lot of people around you as a part of your team, whether it's on, um, you know, like Dharma Worldwide for the label, whether it's the tutorial sample packs, whether it's PR management, one thing that I think is central in anyone that's very successful in this industry is building a strong team of people around you. Are there any common traits or you know qualities that you look for in people that you work with on a regular basis? A lot of people that I work with that are around me were friends from back home originally. And I've seen with pretty good consistency that if you keep people around you that you feel a bond with, that you'd want to spend your time with, uh, you can trust that they will, they will learn the skills needed like justin who's my tour manager justin didn't know shit about tour managing going into it um but it's better than having uh, some dial tone of a person who just goes with me to every show who i feel no connection with um yeah uh so so that's worked out uh anthony is my best friend um you know he moved down to los angeles and uh, sort of winged it flung himself at it and figured out as he's gone along so the really core people to me are uh, my managers, my manager, Carlo, he's, uh, he was Anthony's older brother. So um, it was really all in the family thing. Now, you know, there's tension and there's rub that comes from that also. I mean, what are you going to do? Fucking fire these people? You're fucked, <laughs> you know, you can't fire anybody, you know. So, you, you know, you get yourself into the thick of it like that. Now, moving forward, I think uh, the thing that I go for is... Um, is obviously it is be, just being a workhorse i guess you know i, I remember in school yeah. there was a teacher that uh you know he said he was very he's very critical old guy he'd say you know there are workhorses and there are show horses and he was actually kind of pointed at me because i was uh, a student <laughs> government and i was so amped to be the leader of the little party that we were and and he just called it. He's like, you're gonna. He basically, without in so many words, not using so many words, he said, you're gonna be a show horse, you know. And I was so amped about it, and I didn't want to do any of the work really when it came down to it, and and I yeah. didn't really show. I didn't really show up. And uh, to to weed out the workhorses from the show horses is, you know, it's. A, there have been times I've made bad bets on people, and and they didn't work out. Um, I'm a lot more critical and clinical in terms of um, seeing who really is here to work beyond even the hours to really work on something like the Dharma uh, website, like it's their own baby. Um, and 
to get that sort of dedication out of everything. I was sort of surprised as I started hiring people after having such amazing chemistry with Anthony and the way we would stay up all night working on something. I was surprised to see how people can kind of phone it in. You know, it's not uncommon yeah. for people phone it in and and to for common sense things to almost be lost on them. Things that sort of indicate to you that they don't really care about this thing. They are being yeah. paid to work on it because you you're well, because you're paying them. Uh, they're doing they're working on it because you're paying them. And you want to find people who are really invested and, and care about the music and care about it on a level that goes beyond money. And, and that's, that's tough. That's really tough to find because everyone's great in a job interview, you know? And yeah. Um, so a lot of qualified you, people, but yeah, a lot of qualified people, and a lot of people tell you what you want to hear in a job interview. <laughs> um, yeah. So it is tough, uh, but I, but I feel like we've really landed on a very great team now. And um, I think also setting a tone very early on of, um, not settling for um, crap or phoning it in. And, you know, like me as a producer, I can't wait to get back to making music. You know, everything administrative is just, is just such a bother and a distraction. But yeah. I've really shot myself in the foot if I don't tend to it earlier on. And yeah. if I'm not very clear about what the vision is, and then it, when I don't get the results or people don't do the kind of work that I was expecting of them, I have no one but the, to blame but myself. So to spend time really early on uh, with with someone that you make a part of your team to yeah. help really clarify the vision uh, is very is very important. And then as time goes on, you can leave them to their own devices more. But I've shot myself in the foot also, and I should accept some responsibility for um being too much of a producer on my own world and not uh, yeah. thinking everything is everyone will just uh, know what I'm looking for. You know? That's, that's, it's tough. I, mm -hmm. I, do you work with the team and what are some of your trials and tribulations with that? I mean, I think the way that I always frame it, especially when it comes to music partnerships is you're going into business with these people. And whenever I'm thinking about whether or not I want to work with somebody, it's, do I want to start a small business with this person? Like I left a production group in LA for those similar reasons. They were guys that had potential and connections, but those weren't people that I wanted to start a business with. Because if you can't trust them from that fundamental level, even if they have a lot of, you know, shiny attributes, things aren't going to really go well. Yeah. Interesting. So there were just some, there were some issues you ran into that indicated to you that this, that gave you pause about going into business with somebody like that. Yeah. Versus I've got other people that I'm with in the music industry that if they wanted to start a clothing line or something like that, and they wanted me to be in on it, I would be like, you know what? I know nothing about this, but I trust you and the effort yeah. that you're going to put in more so right. than whether or not I know, or you know anything about this. Yeah. I know what you mean. You can tell some people are going to follow through. You can, you, you start, you start to develop a radar for that. I will say, I, I think any business I, sh I, I get into should be around music. I, I'm not very good. And I've thought <laughs> in the past that I've been good at, at getting into a business that uh, is about something I don't fully understand. And uh, I think I'll always stick to what I truly understand moving forward. One thing that I really want to get your input on that I've been having a discussion with a lot of friends over the past few weeks, it's middle of April, still kind of dealing with the coronavirus pandemic situation. The music industry is primed for a huge shift because 
so much of the industry relies on tour revenue, whether it's the artists, labels, management, everyone's kind of getting a cut from so many different angles. So I'm kind of curious, I'm sure you've been having these thoughts or discussions with other people, but how do you see things shifting over the next year or so? I think, I think there's different scenarios. I mean, if, if this, if we can resolve this coronavirus in the, in, in this year, I, I think this year you get, is pretty much a wash, right? I don't think anybody's going to be touring this year. Uh, then, then I think we can recover. And if, and, uh, you know, businesses who go out of business might stay that way. And I think it'll affect mom and pop. Uh, shops uh, that yeah. can't withstand that lack of consumership in this time. And it might affect smaller mom and pop um, labels or, or, or people whose uh, income is tied to touring. So that's yeah. that's absolutely relevant. For artistry, I think it's potentially a really great time uh, for people to True. get out of the this cycle of going on the road, coming back, making what little music you can. The concept of a cycle, of a sort of like a blind going through the motion cycle, um, being, being halted and people having to think and brainstorm and go back to drawing board, I think really applies across all art forms and even all businesses right now. And that's really healthy. Uh, I think, mm -hmm. you know, once people become comfortable in the, in the making money and they found their kind of uh, rhythm and uh, this this kind of jolts that and allows you to um, to do a lot more thinking and go back to a time when you all you had was time to think. And a lot of beautiful things come out of that. I mean, I think this is offering a lot of people, at least producers, a taste of the Niles 2013, where you've yeah. got time to work through shit, which a lot yeah. of people didn't have a year ago or even four months ago. So yeah. how, the, you know, hopefully people will use that in the best way possible to generate something that's unique and interesting and exciting. Yeah. Like if you said, you, you know, you've been meaning to, to make uh, your EP or, or write your script or whatever. At the end of this coronavirus thing, if you haven't done it, you're an asshole and you've really <laughs> got to hold yourself to that. Uh, you, you should really feel like shit if you, if you haven't done something by the end of this whole thing. I mean, there's nothing but time. I was talking to one of my friends whose dad works at Chase Bank and we were kind of like talking about social distancing and whatnot. And he's like, I don't get it. There's so many people that are opening small business accounts right now. And I was like, at first I was like, that's kind of silly to start a business right now, you know, economy wise. But at the same time, there's some people that are getting off their asses right now that either got laid yeah. off or working from home and have some more time. So I'm like, actually, I think this is for some people, a cool thing, depending on how you leverage the situation. It's absolutely right. You know, there's a, there's a talk that one of the lessons that I gave them was, um, be broke for as long as you can, because in the early stages uh, of, of producing, when you are broke, you're not bound to anyone. You have no responsibilities. Uh, the second that you get some money, uh, you're going to want to keep that up. You're going to want to maintain some lifestyle that you now enjoy because of money. So you're going to have people uh, who depend on you for rent because you live in a nicer place and you're going to have people that uh, expect you're going to go out with them. And, and all of these things, the, these things will, will weigh you down. And when you're broke, you're selfish. You don't know anything to anybody. You can pick up here, you can move, whatever. The thing is with our lifestyles is that they introduce incredible weight that makes it hard to be selfish and to yeah 
to uh, take the sort of time needed to really uh, succeed at something and to, you know, maybe you work a nine to five job right now. And you feel a bit irresponsible when you take all that time to work on music. And so you're one foot in and you're one foot out. And, and that's just no way to really be good at this. Everyone's trying to make it in music. So one foot in and one foot out, how would you ever do it? I mean, yeah. Uh, and right now is a time when um, uh, you have nothing. Uh, you're, you're basically broke. I mean, you, you, you're broke in the sense that you can't go out. So you can't do anything. Things that money would allow you to do, you can't do right now. So in terms of your currency for being able to live, you know, luxury, you know, go do activities and live in luxury, you're sort of broke. I mean, your currency is, is no longer valid because you can't even go out, outside. So it sort of goes back to that mentality of uh, being broke and, and, uh, and not feeling that uh, the pressure and making yourself immune to the pressure. And everyone has been given this immunity to pressure because you are supposed to do nothing but say that and no one is in no one is invulnerable to that really you know everybody will feel that pressure and it will sway your decisions and when it when money gets introduced and comfort is introduced these really influence your decisions in ways that you don't understand no one is objective enough to really understand how much they influence them uh so it's only when it's all those things, all those comforts are really stripped away and that routine life has been stripped away that that you can really be free to um, to to go inward and, and create some piece of music, or create a body of music or or just uh, get the ball rolling. At least it's, it's really a beautiful state to, to be in. So, yeah, I think it's a good time for yeah. art, honestly, as long as uh, as long as we get out of it at some point. I think it's a good mm -hmm. time. I mean, I think that's something that anywhere throughout your story that we've talked about today, there's been some semblance of you being uncomfortable. Going back to you being in high school, producing for those rappers in front of them, you were uncomfortable. Going to you know the cataract stuff and having to be in this lane that you kind of just found yourself in, in terms of like the pop songwriter lane, you were uncomfortable. And even getting into the Kashmir stuff, like you were still getting your feet off the ground. So leveraging that in your situation right now, whether you're in a nine to five or you've got some free time, finding a way to make yourself uncomfortable so that music can actually come out. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There are a lot of external things that made me uncomfortable there. And it takes a, it takes a real conviction to uh, make yourself uncomfortable. Yeah, it takes real conviction. That's why no one wants to go to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it takes real conviction to do that, to appreciate the value of that there was like a yeah huh yeah that's that's funny there was a study about uh you know some some guy did a test with kids and he wanted to come up with a really simple metric or or, or uh, something that would cue you in about the future success of a child you heard about this i think it was marshmallows you can, you offer a kid you say you can have one marshmallow right now you can wait for and have two later and that is just a great way to summarize what, se what separates successful people and unsuccessful. I hate talking about people that way, but you're successful and yeah. you're not successful. But <laughs> Very generally, if you, if you look, I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it a little bit more humane. If, if, if you look at the instances of your life that led you to success, in that moment, you embody that child that gave up a marshmallow now for, for two later. You know? Yeah. Uh, I always like think about it 
like it's whatever, 2020 right now, I'm doing things so that 2022, 2023 Connor can succeed. And yeah. it sucks. It's not fun for me right now. But if I can anchor myself to that, I'll be way better off. Like, for example, you know, for a lot of producers, they're like, God, I wish I could play piano. I wish I could play guitar. I wish I could take singing lessons. Well, if you start now and invest in the three years down the line, get all of your marshmallows back then there. Yeah. You're going right. to be so much better off for it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. As we get older, we have a bit too much pride and to not be good at something feels repulsive. There's something about being an adult and to sit down and suck at a piano. It's like, what am I doing with my life? You know, it really, <laughs> yeah. when you're, when you're a kid, that feels maybe a little bit more appropriate or something. And as an adult, we have to get out of that mentality um, that it's wrong and we're above sucking it at something yeah. first, you know, and, uh, but you're at, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, uh, if you can still be willing to suck at things and still, and do them and do them resiliently, then you'll never really get old. You'll always be good. You know, you'll always be evolving. And I think that's very much so a learned skill that for any producer, I feel like is critical. Like for me, I started taking voice lessons a few years ago and I was so freaking uncomfortable with them. I am not a great singer. I'm currently still not a great singer, slightly better, but still not a great singer. But I just saw that as something where I'm like, okay, if I am so uncomfortable, I'm so bad. There is so much growth that I can get yeah. here. And I'm sure you enjoyed, you enjoy those aspects of production too, the growth aspect of it, because there is so much joy in finding that. So the more that you can embrace it, the farther you can push yourself with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, ab ab absolutely. I, I still, every song feels like I forgot how to produce again, or, you know, <laughs> I know the basics, but making something sounds good, making something sound good, you know, it's, it's a new idea this time and it requires a whole different uh, vibe and decision-making. But the, 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 it's interesting about taking voice lessons. What made you want to do that? And what did you feel like you've gotten out of that? I think one, I wanted something new. I think I was very comfortable with production and it was just a fun thing. I like didn't really feel like I had the time for other things musically and I wanted to focus on my production, but just had some energy for that. And then two, I think an arrogance in wanting to do everything on a track. I just yeah, pictured myself know, as like yeah. a 35 year old, just like looking at my inbox, waiting to get vocals back from somebody. And that image just made me really uncomfortable. So... <laughs> And I think, you know, it was an arrogance in me being like, oh, well, I can do it. And that's, a, you know, been a common thread throughout my life. So that was kind of more so the driving factor, both something new, like kind of like the hobby aspect of it that, that related to production, but then also like an arrogance and kind of this grander vision for what I feel like my music could be. You know, I've had that same arrogance and I'm sure you know what I'm going to say is that it can... It can hinder you when you want to do everything yourself. Obviously, totally. delegate, you know, delegation opens up so many doors. And every time I do delegate, I say, you know, what? instead of trying to use contact, maybe I'll have a guitarist play this part. I'm always just like, I should do this all the time. It's, it's so much better, you know. But I think that it's a I think the winning answer is a combination. I think for you to still use singers, but for you to be able to put down the idea that you want to hear and to, to know what you want it to sound yeah. like, to guide them, to be able to speak in their language. Like 
if you have a song idea, you say you're not the best singer, but at least maybe you could carry the tune now to put down the idea. So when you send it to a singer, you get exactly what you want out of them. And the huge thing for me also working with graphic designers was already knowing Photoshop to show them basically what I was looking for. And then I say, now you make it awesome. Uh, but as off as in many of arenas of your life that are important to you, like you said, waiting in your inbox for a vocal, you know, it's so scary if you if you didn't know how to give them direction, uh, yeah. you, you could get anything in that inbox and you're at the whim of when they send it to you and your whole life could your whole plans could be thwarted and slowed down because you didn't know how to communicate with them. And, and they're going to send you a vocal it could be good. It could be bad or whatever. You waited a week for it. It, it yeah. was a week of your career, you know, so to be able to learn sort of every step of the ladder so that when you it comes time to deliver your vision to the world, it is uh, as accurately as possible a reflection of your artistry and your taste. Uh, if you didn't leave too much up to other people, you allowed for their genius to trickle in the things you wouldn't have thought of, but you took it upon yourself to try to uh, communicate a vision to them as clearly as you could and, and put as much of yourself in it and not just wait for the inbox to fill up uh, with what they decided to do. That's one thing that I always push newer producers to think about too, is defining what they want out of their artist project with all the different faculties. How much do they want their hands on every single aspect? Like some people want to design everything from scratch, drums, presets, um, chord progressions, everything like that. But you have to think about, is that going to get me the end result? What is the end result in this? For you, I don't think you care whether or not you played the guitar in or you used a contact library and played it in on your piano. It's just tying all those different things to your vision and then being smart and efficient about it so that you can actually release music. You have to have that in mind. The final goal that supersedes if you sound designed everything, if you, yeah, if you use contact, you use a guitar, but it supersedes all of that. I mean, you want to have a finished product product in your hand that you're going to play for people and be proud of and say, this, this is me. And this is what I, you know, that, and be, yeah. And, and, and that is, that is the ultimate goal. And people become paralyzed at all kinds of different steps along the way by not focusing more on that. And that's a really good observation. So when I announced that we were recording this interview, I had a lot of producers asking me, what does it take to get a track signed to your label, Dharma Worldwide? So can you provide any insight on what separates the tracks that do get signed to your label to those that don't? When, yeah, I, I may mean, briefly tell you, when it comes to tracks that we sign for Dharma, there's, there's a couple of categories that a track that gets signed will fall into. Either it has uh, like a great vocal, just is a great song, and the production is solid and we're just sold sort of on the song of it. Um, that is a great way to get signed. And that is sort of beyond whatever the culture and aesthetic of, of Dharma is. Um, if, if it's just a really great song, that'll work. Um, the other thing is the culture of Dharma, not necessarily being Indian culture or Middle Eastern culture, but whatever story that the artist has to tell, you know, with where from where they're from, or um, if it, it doesn't have to be about their heritage, it could just be about uh, what story, what kind of world they want to put you in. And, and if they can successfully put you in some sort of world, 
as opposed to just making another dope banger. You know, if they sort yeah. if they invite you into kind of some kind of unique uh, space, then that that is really interesting for us, and we want to put out songs that do that as often as possible. So that that's kind of the thing. I mean, as much as you yeah. can tell us about your story and your culture, that that always win points with us. I mean, that was something that I had written down just about your project in general and just talking with you about it today. There's so much intention behind it, so much more than just the music and then just the you know thing that people are streaming on Spotify. And I think all of the most successful brands have that to an extent. It's way more than just a good track on a good label. And I was thinking about that kind of preparing for this. I saw an artist that has just been like kind of low tier EDM for like eight years. And I'm like, they're still around and they were just still kind of doing this kind of like personalist music where it was just like a cool song, but there's nothing more for people to grab onto to their brand. And for right. you, you've got the visual element, you've got the sample packs, you've got the you know educational aspect, the live shows, like there's so much more to it. And, you know, the music is great, but I think that allows people to connect with the music more so because there's a story behind it. Yeah, definitely. Um, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, you, you've got to use every angle that you can to give people insight into what you're about. First, you have to sort of stand for something. In the beginning, Kashmir was really focused uh, in terms of what it wanted to message the message that I intended to give people which was yeah. something darker than you're used to seeing on spin and was a label putting it out something darker we took a video the first video is megalodon that looked like a normal spinning video where it's some girls about to have a good time they're about to go in the water they're dancing and then they get eaten by the shark so it was like almost really on the nose way to be like we're going to be something uh, sort of contrarian to yeah. uh, what you what you're seeing on spinning right now um it felt like it felt fresh and it felt like a really poignant way to um to establish that that i wanted to do something darker and uh, and cinematic and um going as time went on i had done tracks that used used indian influence in them i didn't really think those ones would be popular and i wanted to i put one out as a free download i was going to put another one out as a free download jammu kashmir was the first one kashmir and the second one was jammu and um yorn from spinning was actually the one that said this one's too good you gotta put this out as a single and so we did and and seeing that the the response that that got um really made me believe that there was uh, an interest in combining indian sounds and and dance music yeah. um and the rest is history no but <laughs> uh but I, I think one when i think look back at the decisions that him you know that the the philosophies the feelings that inform my decisions were not so much about what i wanted to be but what i didn't want to be and i think that's a little bit less daunting of a, of a way to look at it is yeah. not who do you want to be and what are what really describes you uh, but what do you not want to be what what's kind of lame to you like you know at the time everyone was super happy and plur and I was like, yeah, it's kind of lame, you know, it's um, yeah. a little too happy. And 
everyone looks the same European dudes with the V-neck t-shirt and they're always <laughs> smiling and, and it's just all a little too happy. And, yeah. um, so I don't, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to, um, it was a very strange rule sort of I made for myself early on. I'm never going to use exclamation points, um, in my social media, or I've never used one yet in social media. I just saw people always new song is out. <laughs> so excited about this one. Yeah. And, um, I guess it was like the Larry David in me. I was just like, what's there? <laughs> why are you so excited? Why does anybody care? I'm, yeah. I'm just not going to use exclamation points. I'm not going to, um, uh, I'm, I'm, let me see. I'm not going to put out anything, you know, particularly poppy. As time went on, I opened myself up more to that. There, were, yeah. I didn't want to play a regular DJ show. I wanted, I didn't want to show my face at first. I wanted it to be all about the music and no connection to the cataracts. And I didn't want to play just a regular DJ show. It would have to be something more than that. And, and that's when the story, the animated story throughout the show came up. So it was a lot of like, a lot of just knowing what I thought was sort of lame and what I didn't want to do helped inform what I was. Now, now it's a little bit easier to say, oh, he represents like uh, Indian uh, music and, and you, it's a little more clear in that sense. I've been tied to that, but I actually really didn't know that. I mean, sure, my name is Kashmir just from the fact that I'm Kashmiri, but I did, putting the Indian sounds, I was a little bit hesitant. I didn't think it would be that popular yeah. and... and uh, and I had to sort of be shown that that, that was going to work. And I learned that. So that was not like I knew from the beginning. And I didn't have some sort of confidence that other people don't have. In fact, at the beginning of the whole Kashmir thing, I was really insecure. And, um, and moving from the cataracts, which had been a reliable source of income, I really didn't know. I mean, I acted like I knew that this Kashmir thing would work out, but I really didn't know. And I had to act, I had to act like I... I want to throw one more production question your way. I know that you're a really big fan of the technical side of production, thus part of why you were inspired to create your own plugin. Are there any kind of uncommon or unpopular third-party plugins that you're personally a really big fan of? I'm looking at uh, my plugins right now. I will say um, uh, the glue is one that I use a lot. Um, I have so many different distortion plugins because I think distortion is just a shortcut to making things sound more interesting. So I've got all the sound toys stuff and I love that. I love the vaster. I, uh, trash. Everyone loves trash. Uh, just been sort of hit or miss for me. I, uh, EQs. I mean, who needs more EQs, but Gullfoss is really interesting. If you guys haven't checked it out yet, it, it has some sort of target EQ, uh, that it's that it will sort of guide your music to with these incredibly fast uh, corrections that it's making. So it's an incredibly fast dynamic EQ that um, is basically shaping your sound to be more towards some curve that they think you're, is pleasing to your ear. So it's, it's interesting. It's it's worth checking out. Um, it'll tame it or boost it uh, depending on the settings. It's a subtle one. Um, but it, it, it honestly just kind of makes things sound better. So if you haven't checked out Gullfoss, it's worth checking out. And track spacer is huge. Uh, track yeah. spacer is, you know what it does, basically side chains the dynamic EQ onto uh, an instrument telling it to get out the way of another instrument. So it's great for creating space. Um, RX7, oh my God. <laughs> uh, RX is just incredible. Um, 
if you guys have never used the standalone RX app, drag some audio into it, like a full track, and it can strip out just the drums. It can give you just the bass. It can uh, give you just the vocal, and it's incredibly good at it. It's really unbelievable. You know, another magical plugin to me is called Pitch Map by Zynaptic. And hmm. Zynaptic have managed to create this sort of real-time melodyne, like a polyphonic pitch corrector. So if you put in a piece of polyphonic audio, like let's say it's a guitar uh, being played, right? And yeah. he does a chord progression that does major chords, it does minor chords. Now you can't just pitch that around traditionally and turn those major chords into minor chords. You'll have a minor triad in there that is just never going to be major, no matter how many times you pitch it. But yeah. with Zynaptic Pitch Map, you feed it in MIDI of chords you want, and it will take the notes it's reading from your audio, and it will shift that to the closest notes in the chords that you've set. So uh, it is pitching it in the, uh, in the least drastic way that it can. It will move it to the nearest note possible, so it will mm -hmm. warp the audio the least amount that it can, and it will just make it cohere with the uh, pitch that you tell the chords that you tell it uh, you want so you can yeah. take like a sample of an old bollywood song that sounded all happy and major and you can turn it into this minor harmonic minor thing whatever you want it will have all the same instruments just playing the new notes that fit with your chords it's wild um that one is wild i think they showed an example on their website with maybe like get lucky uh with daft punk and they were like, let's turn this into a minor song. And it just got all like dark and, you know, it's yeah. just like the same song, but they just are changing the chords on the fly. Um, and Pharrell's voice is literally changing its notes to match the new chords on the fly. So it's pretty, it's pretty wild. Yeah. And as far as, uh, you know, since it's just the usual guys, you know what since we all use, um, obviously I'm a big contact user. Um, mm -hmm. Another good one is engine. They've got really yeah. uh, great libraries. Best service makes engine and they have really incredible vocal libraries and, um, and just kind of interesting world sounds. A UVI workstation. They're another one that's like contact. And, uh, I'm thinking instead of just overloading you with, uh, <laughs> All kinds of shit. I think I've covered a good amount of the basics now. I would so, say so. Yeah. So I think you got, I don't want to overload. I think I gave you some good ones there. Anyway, I should probably get back to my life of making music and uh, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> all right. So, one last question What's going to be coming up for you in the next few months? So, I've got this new song, uh, Bruck It Down, which is a new style for me. It's, Sort of, uh, you know, like a mid-tempo, um, like, I guess, Moombatone, uh, reggae sort of thing. We got a really dope singer. Um, T, by the way, T-Baby is a singer on it. We connected, yeah. me and this guy, at a session, and I had just recorded. I was actually recording for Sounds of Cashmere, Volume 3. We were doing a couple weeks with different instruments, uh, people coming in recording. Yeah. And I had done this uh, melody, and it was just so, I couldn't get it out of my head. 
and I was, it sounded like Carnival, and I just love those big horn mel- melodies from Brazil. And uh, I was like, well, what do you think of this one? You want to try to write a song to it? And as me and T wrote the song to it, um, we really just bonded, and he just became one of my favorite people. I mean, by the end of this conversation, we had really gotten deep and connected, and, and yeah. you know, we tried to keep the lyrics fairly simple, but... Um, I think we we fit some we fit better than your average kind of uh, EDM lyrics in there, and I think there's some soul into it. That guy's got a lot of soul, and mm-hmm. uh, and then Sack, who was a producer that you know when I was first getting into dance, everyone knew that song. La gente está muy loca. Yeah. What the, the fuck? <laughs> yeah, and since then he did trumpets with uh, with Sean uh, Paul, and I was like, you know what, you know who could fucking really take the song to the to the finish line is, is that guy's sack. He, he knows what's up. And, and so got in contact with him and it was surprisingly easy to get in touch with him and, and get a song made with him. And he actually, uh, he's a Spanish guy, but he came in and uh, we, we worked together on it. And then he added some things on his own and we shot a video while we were all down in uh, Mexico before everyone had to stay inside. So, so Brucky Down is out now, guys. And um, <laughs> if you haven't checked it out, please uh, go go give it a listen. It's something different for me. And um, yeah, I think you're being to it. Awesome. Well, with that, we will wrap things up for this episode. Be sure to check out Kishmir's new single, Brucky Down, which you just released. I'll link it in the description below this podcast. Now, it's been great chatting with you. Appreciate you being on the show. Yes, you too, man. Great questions. And, um, and obviously, you're a real producer and think like a real producer. And uh, it's fun to talk to you, man. It's really fun. Appreciate it.